Hey everyone, welcome back to the Monday edition of the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and I'm joined today by one Jeremy Greenfield of Digital Book World, who is actually fresh off of his adventures at Book Expo America. Jeremy, how's it going? Book Expo was fantastic this year, Michael. So what were your impressions of the conference overall? I mean, it, it's the largest or one of the largest uh, North American publishing event, and it runs in conjunction with the IDPF, which was uh, the body pretty well responsible for uniform ebook standards. And there was a lot of news coming out of the event with uh, startups and established players and product announcements. It was, uh, it was madness. So uh, give me your impressions of uh, the news news coming out of the event overall? Well, there was a lot of talk about Amazon in a shot, which I know we're going to get to later, that the, the contract negotiation and, and dispute uh, between the two of those companies. Um, there was a lot of talk about ebook subscription services, um, and there was lots, a lot of talk about books. And one of my favorite things about Book Expo America is that, you know, you, you run into someone you know uh, walking down the aisles of all the publishers, and you start talking about business maybe or something happening with Amazon or Barnes and Noble and soon you find yourself talking about the plot of a book that someone told you about or that you started reading or that you just finished. Um, so, you know, a lot of these conferences are really all business, but Book Expo America, you know, you also really talk about what we're all in the industry for at the end of the day, which is which is books. Okay, so one of the, you know, now that we're speaking about books, you know, every year Digital Book World has their own event and you just guys just announced a new one coming up with a whole list of speakers. Yes, Digital Book World 2015. Uh, this will be our sixth uh, Digital Book World. Um, you know, I think it's the best event out there. I know I'm biased, so uh, people should check it out at conference.digitalbookworld.com. Um, we've announced uh, some keynote speakers. It's really early, obviously. It's beginning of June and the event's not until January, so we've got over half a year to go, but um, Brian Murray, the president and CEO of HarperCollins, will be speaking. Uh, Linda Zecker, the president and CEO of Cotton Mifflin Harcourt, will be speaking. Um, Walter Isaacson, who is president and CEO of the Aspen Institute, but also uh, the author of uh, you know, several fantastic books, including Steve Jobs, um, the biography of Steve Jobs. And then Ken Oletta, that, that might be my favorite out of all of them because I just love The New Yorker so much. And he is the media columnist for The New Yorker. And he's also the author of the upcoming title, Googled the End of the World as We Know It. Um, so those are just, in my opinion, four super great speakers. And I just can't wait to see what the rest of the schedule turns out like. Did you read his autobiography on Steve Jobs? I did not read the biography of Steve Jobs. Uh, no, unfortunately, I did not. It was great. Uh, well, that's what I hear. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I seldom read a book twice, and I read that book twice. Um, for those of you that maybe haven't read it or maybe just heard about it, uh, Walter and Steve have been talking to each other for like 20 years. So, you know, off and on, Steve would, you know, walk with him and, and answer his questions and give interviews and things like that to him. And, you know, all along it was assumed that uh, Isaacson would be Steve Jobs' official autobiographer. And there's been a lot of books about Steve Jobs' life, you know, the rise of Apple and things like that. But a lot of it comes from articles from the media, um, you know, uh, other books and things like that for 
exciting uh, sources. But uh, what I liked about the Walter book is that he's just known Steve for so long that it really was evident in a writing where you got this introspective on his life that you didn't get through anywhere else, you know, and, and I, I really like that. And it kind of followed, you know, um, his the rise and fall of Apple and him leaving to, you know, uh, help with Pixar and to do next and, uh, you know, coming back to Apple and, you know, launching the iPod and, and the iPhone and the iPad and all that stuff. So um, if you are involved in, you know, a lot of things, you know, if you're, if your interests are in Apple at all, this is a great book. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was on a New York times bestseller list for like forever. It seemed like well over a year. Yeah, obviously it's a very well on the New York times bestseller list. It was one of the big nonfiction hits of the past couple of years. And, um, you know, Steve Jobs led a really interesting life. He was a very important, uh, person. And, you know, by all accounts, Walter Isaacson did a great job of capturing that. So I personally can't wait to hear him speak. And, um, you know, Ken Aletta as well. And, uh, uh, Brian Murray and Linda Zecker should be fantastic too. So the startup challenge at uh, Book Expo America. This was the first time that it was all at Book Expo America. They did one last year, but it was at the Alley in New York, and they only had sort of like the the finalists that went to Book Expo. But this year, there was like a lot. I think that there was a, almost about 20 startups that were all there uh, to uh, vie for you know, uh, raising capital uh, to get themselves known in the industry. And um, some of these companies actually had some very uh, interesting uh, ways that they were going about book discovery and things like that. What were your impressions on these companies? Um, well, I thought that with the startup that won, uh, you know, there are a lot of startups that deserve to win. Uh, a lot of interesting ideas right now for their own book publishing. And I think, you know, we're kind of on like the third generation of, of book digital book publishing startups. Um, and I feel like, you know, a lot of the startups that just really didn't have any ideas about how to make money and just sort of thought about, like, you know, being a visionary about the future of books, um, and those have really gone away mostly. Now it's really about creating utility and um, creating value uh, for readers and for publishers and for authors. Um, so the startup that won is called The Next Big Book, and it's sort of a book version of The Next Big Sound, which basically uses consumer data and social listening to sort of try to figure out, um, you know, what the next popular, really popular book is going to be. And, you know, The Next Big Book is well on its way. It already has a, a, a preliminary deal with, with Macmillan that we reported on um, a couple weeks ago, and now it has um, $10,000 from Ingram uh, Content Group. Uh, to I don't think it's capital that's going to make a huge difference to the company, but it, but you know getting involved in a content group, you know, there's a lot of smart people involved in that company, and um, it, it could really help them you know meet the right people in terms of doing deals with publishers. Uh, and I think you know publishers have always 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 been chasing after that thing of you know how can we figure out what people are going to want next, um, and they're they're putting out books that are coming out in six months, a year, two years is very common. Um, so they have to time it really well. Like, what are people going to want to read in two years? Um, so, so the next big book could be really promising. Um, the startup that came in second place is basically a literacy educational uh, platform that already has made inroads to the classroom. Source books, I believe, gave them three thousand um, dollars. Maybe it was five thousand. One of those two uh, called Clovey. 
Um, and they have a really solid team also and a really solid idea, and they're already working with people. So it's not like these are startups about, you know, building connections between readers and books without really thinking about how anyone's going to profit from it or, or if you, anyone actually really wants to do this. These are real things happening in the real world, and, and, and it was great to see. Did you hear or have you been paying attention to LeVar Burton's Kickstarter campaign for the Reading Rainbow? Yeah, I heard that they raised uh, over $2 million. As of right now, they are at $3.2 million. Wow. And it's basically they raised a million, I think, in less than like 24 hours. There's 29 days to go as of uh, June 2nd, 2014. And 3.298, so basically 3.3 million uh, they've raised. Uh, For those of you that are not aware, I get the Reading Rainbow was on TV for like the longest time and it was basically a show that you know made learning fun and encouraged kids to read and let's be honest michael everyone is aware of reading rainbow and that's how he was able to raise so much money well you know in canada it wasn't on tv here uh, that that just surprises me i mean i, I thought it was everywhere but then sesame i mean sesame street reading rainbow or like what i grew up on yeah i mean sesame street uh and the polka dot door is what i grew up on here but yeah i mean that the- i've never heard of i don't even i have no idea what the polka dot door is <laughs> it was like it was like sesame street uh light um and they had like you know the type of uh you know talking stuffed animals and things like that but it was it was basically sesame street with like a lower budget actually probably like no budget but um you know the reading rainbow i mean you know a lot of our listeners are based like in europe or canada and the show isn't simply on tv here so um i guess what what they're doing now is that they want to uh get more online you know they they want to start doing the shows and producing content but they want to do it like on tablets and some of their stretch goals include like um android tvs uh android devices making dedicated apps uh instead of being freely distributed in 1500 schools they want to do it in like 5500 schools and it looks like they'll more than likely meet all their stretch goals i mean a lot of people are really backing this project are you surprised? Um, I'm surprised by the amount. I mean, I thought a million was like pretty ambitious, and I think probably they did too. Um, but they crushed that number, and um, I'm really happy for them. Uh, I guess now that it's up there, it's, it's you know, LeVar Burton's extremely popular. Reading Rainbow is just so beloved uh, here. Uh, everyone knows Reading Rainbow in, in America. I mean, and it's one of the few things that everyone does that everyone grew up with. Um, and I don't think that you're going to see that in 30 or 40 years that there's going to be one thing that everyone grew up with. Um, so now knowing that they did so well, I guess it doesn't surprise me that much. But, um, yeah, uh, it, it is a little bit of a surprise because the number is so big. But, but LeVar is very popular and he's fantastic. He hosted our Digital Book Awards last year. Um, he's very charismatic. He, he's fun. He's funny. And he truly deeply cares about reading and literacy. Um, so in a way it doesn't surprise me except for just how, how big that number is. I guess their, their first stretch goal is 5 million and it looks like they'll, they'll, they'll crush that in like a few days. But I think that this, it, you know, if it could beat 5 million, 
and, and you know, prospectively go up, which I don't really see anything hindering its path. The more money that it's making, the just the the more media attention it gets, and with that comes you know more investment. It could prospectively be the the highest funded Kickstarter project in history, and I mean that. Uh, that what, what's the highest one? Oh, let me look at that. Uh, I think it's it was um, the Android Gaming Council, the uh, the Oya, but I'm not sure. Well, we can figure that out. Uh, another time. Um, but I'm really happy to see. I mean, I think that RR Kids, which is sort of the new digital conception of, of Reading Rainbow, is is really great. It's one of a couple of great kids' platforms out there. Um, you know, kids really have some fantastic things these days in terms of digital reading experiences. And, you know, I remember when I was a little kid, I was really excited when I got a new book. And, you know, kids today just have access to so much stuff now um, that uh, it's just got to be wonderful for them. Okay. Uh, the most highly funded project ever was the Pebble e-paper watch, uh, 10.2 million. Next to that was the Oya, which I thought was the highest at 8.5 million. And then uh, the Neil Young music player, 6.2 million. And all of the rest are like, you know, 3.2, 3.9, 4.1. But on the main list is the Reading Rainbow. So... It, you know, already up there. Yeah, I mean, it basically just has to like double what it's doing now, and it'll be the second most funded um, Kickstarter thing in history. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing holding it back. But yeah, I mean, as a kid, um, I remember going to the Scholastic Reading Fairs uh, when they would drop by the schools and have like the big book fairs where you would uh, totally. Me too. I was I was all over that. Me too. I like. You know, leading up to that, I my my mom would like budget money aside, you know, months in advance, and I would just like go there, and I'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm gonna get like ten books, and I would like seriously devour like ten books, like within a month or two at the most, because uh, I guess growing up, uh, we didn't have cable, uh, we lived like really rural, so uh, kind of grew up like on like a small farm, so. Um, we didn't really have like a lot of entertainment. So I kind of grew up just, you know, voraciously reading everything. So yeah, mm -hmm. it, was, it was basically like, I would, I would be camped out waiting for the scholastic fair to open. I'd be like the first one running in and like, you know, frantically looking around, like eyes darting to the left and to the right. And just like, Oh, look at over there. Oh, look at over there. And just, yeah, just being, yeah, totally I, have, I have very fond memories of that. I used to load up on books. Um, I wasn't allowed to get as many as you did. I maybe got like, you know, five or six books, but, but you know, we were always getting books as presents and, and uh, you know, they knew that that's what we wanted, me and my sisters. So uh, we had a lot of books around too. And I would always, I loved the, uh, the little cartoon books that we used to get when I was very little. Um, yeah, very fond memories of that. I don't even think growing up that we even had like a big bookstore in town. I think like there was no chapters there was, I think, like, the only way that we bought books was, like, at, like, secondhand bookstores or uh, I think that that was it. Or, like, you know, um, I think, you know, you were, you probably remember, like, 20, 25 years ago, um, you know, when you would go to, like, a big department store, there used to be, like, a huge book section, like, uh, the equivalent of, like, a Walmart. Remember when, like, their book sections used to almost take up, like, an entire aisle? Now they're just, like, 
maybe there's like 30 books there total. So yeah, I, I gotta say, I don't remember that. I mean, uh, you know, when I was a little kid, my favorite thing to do was we go to Barnes and Noble. Um, and we had, we had a Barnes and Noble, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes it would be Porter, sometimes it would be Barnes and Noble. And it, was, it would be a real treat. Uh, we'd go there and we'd, we'd maybe once every couple of weeks you'd get a book. Um, and, uh, I, I've always had, I think a lot of active readers are like this. I've always bought more books than I've read. I know a lot of readers do that. And, um, I, I've been doing it ever since I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, I guess we were, you know, be growing up in Canada, especially growing up, like I grew up in Thunder Bay, Ontario, which was like pretty far northwestern Ontario. So we were kind of like really low, I guess, on a lot of companies priority of like opening up like a bookstore chain or or this and that. So all we had is like indie bookstores and, and you know, things like that. So I guess I developed like a fond appreciation of like mom and pop indie stores at a, like a, a really early age. But I remember when I was like, you know, early teenager, I would like make it my mission every week to go to like the the used bookstore like the comic store and just like load up on like novels and then just like read like a book a day and just like devour them like i was a thirsty man in a desert and this was like mm. a bookstore like my own personal portable oasis yeah wow that's that's a great story <laughs> so um let's talk about some other news uh, we kind of touched on this a bit as being the you know, the theme at Book Expo America and the things that everyone talked about was uh, the Hachette and Amazon uh, battle. And, you know, you, we we both have been following this story ever since, like, it, it, it really first started developing. So we kind of have a bit of a unique perspective that we've been following the trends and, you know, we've been listening to the Amazon official announcement, which is actually very rare that Amazon ever publicly comments on anything um and but they commented on this and Hachette you know responded to it um for those of maybe the listeners that maybe casually followed it what were the, what was like the big news out of Book Expo America about the Hachette deal uh there was no news that came out of Book Expo America um you know, both companies said or very early on, right before the fair, this came out, I believe, on Tuesday, um, that this is going to be a long negotiation, that the two sides are very far apart. Amazon's statement was a little bit, I'd say, on the friendlier side, just the way it came out. Um, but I think that most people in the industry, and I, and I think Hachette by the tenor of its statement, um, you know, kind of thought, didn't really take it, uh, to, didn't really think that Amazon was, was dealing plainly, um, that the statement was sort of, uh, a little bit two-faced. Um, and Hachette's statement had a little bit more bite to it. Um, and, and the main area where the statement sort of had this conflict was over creating this author pool. And I think the people on the Hachette side were very upset that Amazon sort of publicly made that offer. And I can tell you that my sources inside the company told me that, you know, Amazon came to Hachette just hours before releasing a statement and said, uh, hey, do you want to do this like author thing with us? And before Hachette even had a chance to respond, Amazon put it in a statement. I mean, so the Hachette people were upset. They thought it was an underhanded negotiating tactic. Um, so when they said in their statement, you know, we will uh, be happy to talk about ways that we can compensate authors who lost out in this uh, after we come to an agreement. Um, and, you know, um, negotiation is ongoing. I think the other big thing that's happened somewhat recently, I think it happened over last weekend, um, is that the, the buy buttons have been removed for pre-ordering Hachette books. Um, 
on Amazon. And that's really going to hurt Hachette because it's really about bestsellers. Um, you know, how does a bestseller become a bestseller? Well, months and months and months of promotion go into a book um, before anyone can order, anyone can buy it in a store. You can pre-order it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon or a variety of other places. And then the first day that book's out, all those pre-orders hit the sales charts. And that's how a book goes to number one on that first day. It's not that everyone knows it's coming out that day and they all go and get it. It's that they've pre-ordered it. And then all those pre-orders get counted on that first day. And then that's how a big book shoots up the bestseller list on that first week. Um, so that's really going to affect Hachette bestsellers over the next couple of weeks or however long this lasts. And Hachette gleans a lot of their sales data that they get on book sales from Amazon. And not being able to fulfill pre-orders really hampers their ability to gauge the success of maybe a new author or maybe someone uh, like, you know, not a household name like a James Patterson or anything like that. They'll, they'll sell books regardless. But I really feel for the, the, the authors that maybe written a title or two that bookstores now don't know how many titles to order because they're not really getting that key metric sales data that was from Amazon. And same with Nielsen. You know, Nielsen Bookscan uh, famously gets a lot of their information from Amazon in terms of being able to uh, accurately define how many titles are selling. And then they could, you know, give that information to, you know, the Wall Street Journal and, and various other newspapers that do their own, uh, you know, sales charts and things like that. So this, the ability to remove pre-orders, but also I guess what Amazon did was um, they are not, they're, they're being very sluggish, if you will, at sending out physical copies of books, you know, three to five week wait periods. So I think with uh, the pre-orders more specifically, I, do you think that that's going to really hurt Nielsen BookScan data? Um, you know, I think that's a really good point. That it, it may not just be the way that it all hits at once. Um, it could also be uh, the issue of the, the book selling data and sort of those key metrics um, that that people look at. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I don't know the answer, but I do think it's a really good point. One, I wrote an article about this, and I, I'm interested to hear your perspective. As we all know, self-publishing is something that a lot of people do. And do you think that the longer this drags out and the less money that authors are making, you know, with Hachette right now? Because I think I read somewhere that, like, well over 65% of all Hachette's digital sales stem from Amazon. And... You know, there, there's a lot of ways that this Hachette Amazon deal could play out. But, you know, with physical titles and prospectively with uh, Amazon getting away with, you know, uh, selling books for less and, you know, Hachette making less money, authors making less money, editors, agents, and everyone making less money across the board. Do you think that this prospectively will encourage more people to not re-sign with Hachette but self-publish instead knowing that they could make more money uh, and they've already generated a name for themselves by you know publishing with you know Hachette major publisher they they if they really want to promote an author they have the ability to make that author a household name do you think that 
if 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 worse comes to worse and say uh Hachette acquiesces to Amazon because basically they have no choice and you know everyone makes less money publishing with Amazon do you think that more Hachette authors will jump ship and self-publish from what I hear Hachette authors are railing around the company more or less um but, you know, how long can that last? I mean, let's say if this dispute goes on for many, many months, I think it will affect the chef's ability to get publishing deals done, to get agents to sign their authors with them. I think it will make some authors reconsider working with the company. Um, but I don't know to what extent. I mean, w will it really affect uh, their ability to pick up authors? You know, maybe, maybe not. Um, maybe they're making up the sales uh, in other places and they can claim just as good distribution. Um, maybe they can say, listen, all the other retailers are just backing us so big right now that um, you know that, that we're doing so well. But all you have to consider that if you're signing as an author, your book's not going to come out right now. It's going to come out in a year or six months or two years. Um, but I think in the long term, yes, it absolutely could affect that. And I think, you know, one of Amazon's aims, supposedly, as, as people have reported in the media, is to, you know, drive a wedge between, um, you know, Hachette and its authors. And I don't know if that's uh, if that's actually going to happen. It seems like it hasn't really so far. Um, but but that seems to be, uh, you know, one of um, one of the aims. Um, so I think you make a good point, but I think it remains to be seen. Okay, so Hachette basically now is trying to not rely on Amazon to such a greater extent. Uh, they just recently signed a deal with Books A Million for an online store within a store concept. And this, the store within a store concept on a retail level it's relatively a young thing, you know, being able to go in a, a Best Buy or a Future Shop and there's like a dedicated Microsoft section where, you know, software, tablets and everything are being sold. Uh, if you walk into certain stores, there's like a Samsung store within a store concept where it's all just Samsung branded phones and tablets and computers and, you know, netbooks and laptops and, you know, uh, etc. But with books, a store with Within a store concept really hasn't been done to a great degree, but Books a Million has created a dedicated Hachette store within the Books a Million website, and almost all Hachette titles are 30% off. And this incur like this is titles that just came out, frontless titles, and in a lot of cases they're giving 40% off uh, for front select frontless titles, but a lot of backlist titles as well. And so this is kind of one of the moves that Hachette is doing in order to increase their distribution, knowing that they can't go all in with Amazon anymore. Um, what do you think about the diversification and the store within a store concept? Do you think that now that Hachette's doing it, do you think this trend may continue? Um, you know, I think we might see other retailers do this with Hachette. Um, to, you know, capitalize on what's happening with Amazon. I mean, I think we might see for the first time in a very long time, uh, you know, companies like Barnes & Noble gain market share on Amazon, uh, at least among Hachette books. They, they certainly will, but maybe uh, in, in the book market as a whole. And I think this is sort of the, the nightmare scenario for Amazon. Really, the only thing that Amazon is, is really afraid of here is, um, you know, if Hachette continues to hold out its negotiations and a company like Barnes & Noble or Books A Million are able to gain some, some good market share uh, from Amazon, and then the next publisher, the next big publisher to negotiate also holds out and Hachette uses, or and Amazon uses similar tactics, and then, 
you know, Books a Million starts pushing Simon and Schuster books or Macmillan books, um, you know, then we might see uh, Amazon start to feel a little bit more pain than it is already. Um, so that that's that's a good point, and I don't know if we're going to see more of that. Um, you know, we already have sort of like sections of these uh, of, of these ebook stores. You know, I wonder will we see a Hachette section in a physical Books a Million? You know, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking too, but. You know, I, I it's hard because like bookstores are kind of like laid out by you know sections. So you have your business section, you have your fantasy sci-fi section, you have your romance section, your newsstand section, and everything's like alphabetical, alphabetical, um, like you know ISBNs and stuff like that. I mean, I don't know. I mean. I, I think that, you know, you actually raised a, a pretty awesome point that, like, Barnes & Noble could really leverage that. And, you know, I think if anybody were to start a Hachette section, I think Barnes & Noble could pretty well do it because they could do it both online and in the store where they could say, you know, you could pre-order titles at this special kiosk that we just set up, you know, or, or something like that, you know. You can't order from, you know... You know, you you find yourself unable to pre-order Hachette titles with the other guys. You know, pre-order them with us. You know, we can fulfill them right away. Yeah, of course, and that's the thinking. Um, you know, that said, uh, Barnes and Noble in particular has not really capitalized on this 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 situation and very quietly has engaged in some sales of Hachette books. Um, but it raises one of the interesting issues about this contract uh, situation, which is that, you know, the other publishers and the other retailers are sort of incentivized. They're sort of looking on the sidelines and kind of want the conflict to continue going on in the short term. You know, for every Shet book that Simon & Schuster, or that, that Amazon doesn't sell, it might be selling a Simon & Schuster book. Um, so... It's really interesting to watch this conflict because on the one hand, the publishers are sort of rooting for Hachette to beat Amazon because, you know, they have this common um, competitor. I mean, not really competitor, but threat. Yeah, um, totally. On the other hand, in the short term, they sort of want to see Hachette suffer a little bit because it helps their cause in the short term in terms of making more money for their authors today. You know, I, I think that from everyone that I've talked to in the publishing industry, I've yet to come to encounter someone that is – rooting for Amazon in this case, you know, I think that, of course, yeah, the industry is not openly rooting for Amazon. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, from my perspective that, you know, if we could foreshadow maybe a little bit or, or speculate, uh, I know that we're, we're more based on facts and, you know, in the present and the here and now, but, uh, I, I do like to speculate every now and again. And I mean, if, if, I could see some really bad things happening if if Amazon wins this because uh, kind of as we talked about before the show, I mean, the, Hachette's one of the largest publishers in the world. And if Amazon could basically get them to acquiesce to their terms um, so everyone's making less money, Amazon's making a little bit more, then all other publishers will basically fall in line because they'll have no choice. And then there'll be this like precedent that's established where, you know, if we can make Hachette and Macmillan bow down to us, that everyone else has to as well. But I, I kind of fear for, uh, other companies, but Amazon, if that plays out, because as we know, Sony books in trouble, 
closed every store but in Japan. Barnes and Noble losing billions on ebooks. You know, they're they're in trouble. Kobo, they, you know, pulled out of selling ebooks in the States. Uh, they're losing money selling ebooks in Canada now. Their international distribution is the only lifeline they have. And a lot of these companies were only ever to you know can compete in a North American market is because of the agency model about, you know, Amazon could not undercut iBooks and, you know, Kobo and Sony and things like that because there was a uniformed ebook price. And I kind of see this whole Hachette Amazon battle as being the future of, of agency pricing. And if Hachette loses, it's basically agency pricing loses for ebooks. And I think that a lot of other ebook retailers are going to be in a real big difficult spot. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people see this as is really it's it's about agency pricing. Um, it's about that that big uh, that big issue. Um, and I think that um, the folks at Hachette know that they know that if they capitulate here that the other publishers probably will too, and then they're never going to see agency pricing again, and then Nook probably goes away, iBooks will be on the ropes, uh, who knows what will happen. Okay, so now that we've you know spoken a little bit about Barnes & Noble, <laughs> um, <laughs> they are um, suspending carrying audiobooks. And, that, um, is, that is news to me. Yeah, they just announced it today. Uh, they sent an email to anybody who's ever bought an audiobook from them before, letting them know that their entire audiobook section is closing July 1st, 2014. Now, for those of you that are, you know, something actually that surprised me, and I don't know if you're even aware of this, but Barnes & Noble's actually sourced their audiobooks from Overdrive, which is uh, one of the largest companies involved in facilitating the transfer of digital content for libraries, ebooks, videos, audiobooks. But Barnes & Noble is actually sourcing all their audiobooks from Overdrive, and they're no longer in the audiobook game. So kind of the way that I see it is that this is a boon for Audible, which is basically the really the only company – now in the landscape in, in, in the U.S. and Canada that actually sells audiobooks. There's really no other companies to really get them from anymore. Why, why would Barnes & Noble do this? I, you know, they never really released their reasons why. From, from what I understand, Overdrive changed their uh, – DRM encryption. Uh, they were using WMA for the longest time, and then they switched to like MP3. But with Barnes and Noble, if you buy an audiobook through them, you can't listen to it through like a Barnes and Noble audio player. You actually have to download the OverDrive app in order to listen to uh, the audiobooks. So I think that Barnes and Noble was thinking to themselves, you know, we're selling audiobooks, but we're encouraging our customers to download like a third party app, you know, e.g., from OverDrive. And it's, you really that confuses people, you know. If you're buying books, so they Barnes decided to just give up. Yeah, I mean, it seems like probably they weren't making a lot of money from it. Um, you know, from my perspective, why would you close something that was a money earner for you or that you were profiting by? Uh, likely that they were not profiting at all, and they're just closing it because uh, a lack of promotion. I mean, do, were you even aware that Barnes and Noble sold digital audiobooks? 
I was not. And that's, I think, the, the, the root of the problem is that they've been doing this for five years. And I have never even saw a press release from Barnes & Noble talking about audiobooks or reaching X number of, of a milestone in their portfolio. I hear all the time about audio, Audible, uh, which is an Amazon-owned company, buying the rights to another 1,500 audiobooks from a company in the UK that went under, or they've just you know, increased their library to X number of titles. Uh, when you buy audiobooks via iTunes on your iPad or iPhone, those books are actually coming from Audible. So they've been pretty strategic in, in signing off with you know Apple, which is arguably one of the most successful uh, ecosystems out there. But when have you ever heard about Barnes & Noble's, you know, audiobook strategy? Like, never. They they never promote it. They never invest any advertising towards it. Uh, and I'm, you know, from everyone that I've talked to today, no, one's, no one was even aware that Barnes & Noble sold audiobooks. So I guess they're fading away into obscurity, but I guess everyone that had purchased an audiobook before is encouraged to back them up because when July 1st rolls around, you won't be able to listen to any of the titles that you had purchased. Yeah, you know, Barnes & Noble, ever since I started reporting on book publishing about three years ago, uh, isn't as communicative as some of the other companies in the industry. Let's put it that. Totally. Uh, you know, all the time I'm trying to like talk to people, and I just get the runaround. You know, it's like, what's the status with Nook Press? You know, what's what's the status with this? What's the status with that? And they're all like, um, we can't talk about this. The people who are running it are on vacation, and it's like. You know, you kind of get those talking point PR runarounds. And, uh, you know, I think that that's partly the reason why no one is aware of these sort of things, because they're not willing to talk about it. And if they're not willing to talk about it, what basis do you have of generating a story that may be on the cover of a magazine or, uh, you know, will will have more than like uh, 100 words, you know, in a newspaper or something like that. So, uh, you know, they, they bring it upon themselves. You know, they, they try to be secretive like Amazon, but it's it's obviously not working for them uh, it, with their digital strategy. Um, okay, so we, we've talked about a lot on the show today. Um, one other thing that I would like to mention is um, the Kindle Cloud Reader. And this is um, uh, an HTML5-based app that would allow people to purchase ebooks through their web browsers and it's you know it's optimized for chrome and safari amazon originally launched this about three years ago and they did it when they pulled the ability for customers to purchase ebooks uh through their app on ios devices um because apple implemented a policy where they would take a percentage of all in-app purchases and you know with amazon they sell so much uh, books that this would just give Apple so much more extra money. So they just disabled the, the ability to purchase with an app and everyone else followed suit. And so Amazon developed an HTML5 cloud reader where you could um, you could read books and buy books in Safari and you actually get a pretty quality experience. And then whenever you purchase a book, it's immediately synced to the iOS app. Uh, they've just done a global rollout. Uh, before the Kindle Cloud Reader was only available in Canada and the US, but it's actually expanded, uh, I believe, to about 82 countries right now. So, um, wow. You know, India and, and, you know, all these big markets that Amazon is basically in. So, like, all over Europe, you know, uh, 
customers could actually buy content from their own localized version of Amazon and be able to read books in a browser. So this is ideal for tablets, you know, um, or you know, other mobile devices such as, you know, if you have your BlackBerry phone and you don't have a dedicated Amazon app, well, you could use the the reader for the uh, web browser and actually read and buy books through the app. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a smart move, you know, and I think the Kobo cloud reader is the only other cloud reader of note, and it's not available in all those countries uh, that Kobo owns and operates in. So, Jeremy, um, we've talked a lot today. Do you have any final thoughts? Um, you know, I hope that the Amazon Hachette issue gets resolved in a timely manner and that all parties are satisfied and that we can resume uh, paying attention to uh, what people are reading. Yeah, I'm kind of tired of all this Hachette news, to be honest, but I guess it is probably the largest news in publishing, but I, I don't see this being resolved until, yeah, I, I give it like another four or five months you know, th this is going to drag the hell out. Um, if it was going to quickly be resolved, it would have been resolved like the um, the second that pre-orders were disabled. But the fact that it's still going on after the pre-orders are disabled are leading me to believe that the two sides are very far apart. And, you know, this is why Hachette is signing agreements with Books A Million and, and doing all these other things because, you know, they know that they can't, throw down with Amazon and rely on them and they're they're trying to do other things so I mean I wish I could say that Hachette will just stand their ground and not re-sign with Amazon but I don't think that that's a likelihood I just see this as dragging out like the the Apple and you know the whole Apple Justice Department case or the 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 Google case on book scanning you know where it's like years and years later it's just still going on it'll never end well, I hope it's not like that. Yeah, me too. So you guys have been listening to the Monday edition of the Goody Reader Radio Show. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can drop a comment on this radio show. If you have any ideas for future segments, kindly drop us know. If you're listening to this radio show on TuneIn, SoundCloud, or a myriad of other sources, uh, goodyreader.com and digitalbookworld.com are your two online destinations for all things digital publishing, ebooks, and all that jazz. Jeremy? Thanks for doing the show, and everyone else, take care.